Now, even though Eve was deceived, Adam was not. Did you realize that? Adam wasn't deceived. No, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. The woman was deceived. The New Testament tells us that. The man was not deceived. The man instead was willful. He said, all right, plate fruit. Looks good. He knew better. Even before Adam bit into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he at least had one piece of knowledge of evil. And that was that if he ate of this tree, it would displease his father. He knew it. Eve, we're told, was deceived. But Satan got in there, messed with her mind. She wasn't sure what to believe. She had heard secondhand. She didn't really know. But Adam stood there, and when his wife handed him the fruit, he made a willful decision to disobey God. And we're told, again, in verse 7, that she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now this is interesting to me. People have actually tried to claim that since apple trees were not indigenous to the region of Eden, that the book of Genesis is a flaw. That there's a flaw there, and, and thus the book of Genesis can't really be true because you know you couldn't have an apple tree. But as I said earlier, it never mentions an apple tree. It's funny, there was a Time Magazine article several years back that talked about this, that tried to undermine Genesis chapter 3 by saying, see, there's no apple trees that are indigenous to that region of the world, therefore Genesis chapter 3 must be wrong. To which the idiot who wrote the article, someone must have emailed him or written to him and said, hey, doofus, there isn't an apple tree mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, really? But <laughs> Never mind. But there is a fruit mentioned that we know is in the garden, a fig tree. They sowed fig leaves together. We know that there was a fig tree in the garden. Interesting. Adam and Eve made figgy clothing in an attempt to cover their shame. Fig tree. Now I want you to think back to our study of Genesis chapter 1 when God commanded man to subdue the earth. And what did God tell man that you need to do to subdue? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. The method, God's method of subduing evil in this world has always been fruitfulness. And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit last week. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Faithfulness was in there too. These are the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. And fruitfulness helps you, gives you the strength to subdue the enemy. Genesis 1.28, God blessed him and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, fast forward from there. From Eden to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, 4,000 years later. Jesus and his apostles, in the last week of his life, are walking through Bethany. And Jesus, we're told in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, you can look this up later, Jesus says, I'm a little hungry. And he looks and he sees a fig tree off there in the distance. And he heads straight for it. He's going to pop a fig tree right out, a fig right off of the tree and have himself a little snack. And he gets to the tree and there's not a fig on it. Oh, it's leafy. It's, it's certainly fig season, but there's not a fig on the tree. And Jesus said, I curse you. And walked away. Now, Peter and the apostles, I can just imagine their reaction. 
The Lord's a little ticked off. No fruit for the Lord today, and he curses the tree. That's a little weird. That's a little uncharacteristic of Jesus. I curse you! Come on, guys. <laughs> and so the Bible tells us the next day they come, the next morning, back by that same fig tree, and it is withered to the ground. And Peter goes, Oh, look, Lord! The, the tree, it withered! The same tree that you cursed! And Jesus... Man, Jesus never missed a trick. For three years, Jesus healed, he taught, he loved, and all the while, he was embroiled in a battle with legalistic Jewish leaders. What was the real problem? The problem, and the, this, this picture of the fig tree and the withering is an example of this. The problem was that the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were fruitless. As a matter of fact, they had become like plastic fruit. You've seen the plastic fruit that it looks shiny and tasty and you actually could almost pick it up and eat it, but the moment, at least as an adult, that you pick it up, you know, it's, it's light. It's, it's not fruit at all. For a kid, they might pick it up and try and bite into it. There's no substance to it. It's empty. To break your teeth. Folks, the leaders of the Jews were into appearances. How they looked how they completed different aspects of the law, but they were not into bearing fruit. They had become fruitless. What's the connection with the fig tree? What is the fig tree, you students of the Bible, what does the fig tree represent in Scripture? Anybody remember? Israel. Israel. The fig tree always represents Israel. Even to this day, if you were to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, you would see the fig tree. It's one of the national symbols. It is a representation of Israel. Why? Well, Israel became just like the fig tree that Jesus cursed. They were so into works and appearances, they were not into truly bearing fruit, which comes from a relationship with Jesus. Don't be just like me, just like me. Love because... It comes through you from me. Treat other people the way you do, not because you're working so hard to be a good Christian, but because our relationship is so good, you're naturally good to other people. That's the way it works. Jesus rubs off on us. The fig tree represents Israel. From the giving of the law, Israel thought that fruitfulness was obtained by working hard enough and keeping the law that they might cover their shame. If we can work hard enough and keep enough of God's laws, we can cover up our sin. We can cover up our shame. We can sow fig leaves together and cover our nakedness before God. Well, Romans chapter 5.19 tells us that as through one man's disobedience many were made sinners, talking about Adam, even so through the obedience of another man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression, the sin, would increase. The law was like a big flashlight that just showed all the sins to be what they were. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, the work of man can never cover the shame of sin. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you will never cover your shame. It doesn't matter how many fig leaves you try to sew together, you cannot cover your shame. 
Adam and Eve, in their early world dumb innocence, not realizing the big picture, tried to cover up and thought, maybe we can hide it. It's like my son, who I said, did you drink out of the milk bottle? No, well then how come there are cookie crumbs in the milk bottle? You can't hide it. My kids are always astounded that I discover what they've done. My daughter, did you shower and shampoo your hair this morning? Yes, then why is there grease dripping off of your face? Go shower and shampoo again. You cannot hide your sin. You can't cover it up. It's like trying to wear fig leaves. Interesting that they picked fig leaves because fig leaves are apparently rough and scratchy and irritating. Which is exactly what trying to cover our sin does. It becomes rough and scratchy and irritating. It is frustrating to try and keep God's law. And you become frustrated trying to be righteous. And so you begin to judge other people, which frustrates and irritates them. Just like fig leaves. I don't know why they didn't use like banana leaves. Or maybe aloe vera would have been a good idea. <laughs> the point is, folks, that self-righteousness and legalism are rough and irritating. And it never works. Well, Matthew 24, Jesus said to take a lesson from the fig tree. In verse 32, he said, When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. It's interesting. I've never seen this before. When Jesus is talking about the fig tree, he doesn't mention figs. He says, When its branch has become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. Or in other words, you know that the figs are going to come. They're not there yet. You know the fruit is about to appear. Because that's when it appears, the summertime. But he doesn't mention the figs in the parable of the fig tree. He mentions tender branches and leaves. What's the point? The point is that Israel will ultimately bear fruit. When is that going to happen? In the day that they accept Jesus as Lord. They will bear fruit. The fig tree will blossom with figs all over it. But in the meantime, what we will see prior to the coming of Jesus is that the fig tree begins to look like it can bear fruit. That summer is near. Folks, Jesus, ruling and reigning in that time that we've called, that we understand to be the millennium, will cause Israel, through their belief in Him, Jews will bear fruit for Messiah once again. And the point is this, that is the only way to bear fruit. The only way to be fruitful in your life is to throw yourself completely on the grace of Jesus. Jesus said, John 15 verse 4, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Don't try to be like me, just like me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Quickly, verse 8, we've got to hurry. Verse 8, then they heard the sound of the Lord. God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, which is always what we do when we sin. We hide ourselves from God. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Now don't get a wrong picture here. First of all, God knows exactly where they are. God's not clueless. He's not going... 
Last time I left Adam, he was here. Well, where's he? Hey, guys. All y'all out and free. <laughs> God's not unsure about where they are. But he is seeking them. And it's interesting to me that the seeking here is of the father, not of the kids. Adam and Eve sinned, and they tried to hide themselves from God. And what does God do? He pursues them. He seeks them out. He tries to find them. And then he doesn't approach them with a condemnation, but he questions them, intending to allow them opportunity to confess and come clean, which notice they never do. They never confess. Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam speaking. And I was afraid because it was naked. And so I hid myself. And he said, God, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Look at man's response. See, Adam is freaking out. But the Lord is seeking out Adam's heart. And if only Adam had remembered in this moment who he was talking to. This is my dad. This is my father. If Adam could have just remembered that, honestly, folks, and I may be totally wrong on this, and we'll find out from God himself someday into eternity, but I really think that if Adam had come clean immediately, we might have had a different picture for history. Not that there wouldn't have been punishment. Not that there wouldn't have been consequence to disobeying God's law. But if man had responded with confession, we might be in a different state today. That's what I think. But what does man do? First two words out of his mouth. The woman! The woman who you gave to me! She gave me from the tree and I ate. It's her fault. It's her fault. She did it. Man, that is so like us. That's what we do. Well, he was driving the car. Well, she brought the beer. Well, well I, it's not my fault. He did my taxes. We play the blame game. Adam kicks it off and points the finger at Eve. He also points the finger at someone else. You've heard the old colloquialism when you point a finger at someone else, you're pointing three back at yourself. That's totally wrong. The reality is when you point the finger at someone else, you're actually pointing the finger at God. Because God created that person and put them on the earth. God gave Eve to the man as a gift, as a beautiful, wonderful helper to walk beside him, arm in arm, to live with him in the garden. And what does Adam do but blame the very gift that God had shared with him? And in so doing, he's blaming God. Well, you don't understand. My spouse is a jerk. Really? I can understand that your spouse is a jerk. I've been a jerk as a spouse myself. <laughs> but you know what? God created that person. God put that person here. Yeah, but you, you don't get it. It's his fault. He's the one who drove me to this. Which is why the Bible says, hey, confess your sins one to another. Confession is such a cleansing experience. But Adam chooses not to confess. He chooses to point his finger at Eve. And so for the time being, God goes along. The Lord says, okay, Eve, let's have a conversation. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. She does the same thing that Adam did. There's a serpent's fault. 
He deceived me and I ate. He did it. And now we're going to see the three-part curse of sin. This is the most important thing that we're going to share this evening and after this be done. So hang with me just a bit longer. The serpent's curse, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now check this out. Here in the curse of the serpent, we have the first prophecy of Messiah. Right here. God started early letting us know that one would be born who would take the sin of the world, the very sin that started right here. And in the first curse, God gives us a beautiful promise. You know, I, I get the feeling here in the garden that as God is doling out curses, we focus so much on the curse. And we read through this and go, man, God was just angry. No, you know what God was doing? I picture this, that God is in the garden in the same way that someone is in the house of a loved one who has passed away. And he's cleaning up. And he's heartbroken. God is torn apart. God is looking at the woman. He's looking at the serpent. He's looking at the man. And he is looking at broken fellowship. It's lost. This is the one thing, the one choice I hoped they would never make, but knew they would. And so, first thing out of his mouth, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Two words. Her seed. Folks, the word is zira, and it's the same word that we use. It means sperm. Women don't have sperm. Women have eggs. But God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. God is indicating right here a miraculous birth. A woman who somehow has a seed within her, which is not the way it is. Women have eggs that the seed comes from the man and implants itself in the egg and creates a life. But God is talking about a very special seed, Jesus Christ. We know that there was a miraculous birth. Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. <laughs> a virgin will be with child. And she will bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14, Emmanuel meaning God with us. First words out of God's mouth, that at the same time he is cursing the serpent, he is blessing mankind to the future. He is letting us in on a big promise. I'm going to find a way to get you back into the garden. I have a way to get you back into the garden. Matthew chapter 1. Don't flip over there, just listen to it really quickly. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. 
But when he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save all his people from their sins. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Isaiah 7.14 that we just read. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Verse 25, interesting. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. In other words, though Joseph married Mary right away, moved up the wedding date, he didn't sleep with her. He didn't have sex with her until after Jesus was born. Even though as a husband he had the right and I know that sounds a little harsh, ladies, but we're talking Jewish laws and rules here. Okay, Jewish culture. Back in the day, the husband had every right, but he didn't. She remained a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, fulfilling a prophecy that began Genesis chapter 3. I'll put enmity between your seed, serpent, and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head. What a crush your head, Satan. You're going to bruise him on the heel. A bruise on the heel goes away. A bruise on the head is mortal. And that's exactly what happened with Satan. Now, folks, the enmity here, the hostility, is between the offspring of Satan and Jesus himself. But I think the indication here is also that the adopted children of Jesus would receive some of this hatred themselves. John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And so we have the serpent's curse. The woman's curse, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And just this afternoon, Penelope D'Angelo made the comment. She said, I'm just going to have to have a conversation with Eve. She's got a lot of explaining to do. I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Folks, marriage, struggle, male-female strife began in that moment. This was not the way it was in the beginning. Man over woman. Woman clamoring for self-control over man. This is not the way it was in Eden. This is the result of the curse. Two things here that are not supposed to be this way. Number one is pain in childbirth. Interesting, what's supposed to be the most joyous, wonderful moment in life now is shrouded in pain. Well, we found ways to try and get the pain to go away, you know, little spinal stuff and drugs and all that. There's still pain. There's still nine months of contractions and struggle and, you know, largeness. <laughs> Why is the giving of life, this occasion that's supposed to be wonderful, tainted with pain? Because now, children are born into a sinful world. They are born into a world where pain exists. And Ma feels that pain right at the very beginning. The second thing that comes in the world, in the woman's curse, is the male-female struggle, specifically in marriage. God says to Eve, your desire, and to all women, I believe, your desire or your longing is for your husband. But he will rule over you. 
What do you mean? Well, if I may be so bold, ladies want to talk to their husbands. They want to walk with their husbands. They want to spend time with their husbands. They want to share their hearts with their husbands. They want to drink herb tea with their husbands. They desire that relationship. They desire women, and correct me if I'm wrong, women desire Eden with their husband. But instead of that, what do you get? He rules over you. He doesn't understand herb tea. He doesn't want to go for the long walks. He comes home at the end of the day, and, and when you want to share something that's on your heart, he just wants to watch football. Shut up and give me a turkey pot pie! <laughs> the woman is longing for relationship. Why can't I just get my husband to sit down and talk to me? Because there's a curse. There is a curse. Things are not right. Things are messed up in this world. It's not your husband's fault. Trust me, I'm a man. I understand that I don't understand. There are times Cheryl says, Rick, I just wish you would understand. And I go, I'm trying. I just don't get it. I don't know women. I'm married to women and I don't understand women. I don't get it. There are things I don't... Instead of intimacy, she gets intimidation. Not Cheryl. I try not to intimidate my wife. Instead of devotion, she gets directives. Did you spend this in the check? Did I tell you? We were going to talk about, if you're going to spend money, you talk to me because I'm the money man. That's what I do. And I don't know how it works in, in marriages where the woman takes care of the money. That would just totally freak me out. Sorry if that sounds, you know, bad, but it's just me. I don't understand. I'm a man. And while I love my wife, see, I am so thankful for Jesus. He says, Paul says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. At least now I've got an example. I've got something that is a measure that I can say, okay, how did Christ love the church? Oh, man, he gave himself up for her. He put her ahead of himself. He died for her. So that's how I'm supposed to love my wife? Yeah. Okay. Do my best. I still have a lot of trouble. This is why we have to work at marriage. We weren't intended to ever have to work at marriage. It was the perfect scenario. A piece of man created into woman. Man and woman side by side, living together, loving together, and dependent completely on God. Hear me again. The way to make a marriage work, and for those of you who are not married but who will someday be married, the way to make a marriage work is not to cling to your wife, it's to cling to the Lord. It is to depend 100% on the Lord. If you're doing that, she's going to love you guys. Girls, if you're depending on Jesus, He's going to love you. Because then you won't be clinging to Him. He won't be clinging to you. It won't be about a codependent relationship. It'll be about a dependent relationship. There was a curse. God didn't intend things to go bad. And Jesus said, Matthew 19, 7, It was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. If you want Eden in your marriage, the only way to make it work is to focus 100% on Jesus. Depend on Him. And this brings us to the man's curse. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. 
Oh. Wow. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow from you, and you will eat from the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God levels three results of a single curse on man and on this world. The first one is the earth itself became cursed. Now, we don't think about this, but honestly, I don't think there was such a thing as thorns or thistles or weeds until this curse. But in the curse of man, in the fall of man and woman, earth itself was cursed to the point that Paul says in Romans 8.20 that creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, referring to God, God subjected creation to this futility in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See what happens is God curses the earth knowing that one day when the children of God are revealed, which will happen when we ride with Jesus from heaven in their glorious return to earth at the second coming. When the children of God are revealed, the earth will be set free from corruption and will become like Eden again. But right now the earth is cursed. Just look at my yard. Number two, man is now driven to work. He is driven to work. While the woman is longing for the Eden relationship, the man is driven to be at work. I want to spend time with you. I've got to go to work. Isn't that the way it tends to be? Now, forgive me again. If any of this sounds sexist, I'm not trying to say that. As a matter of fact, I think one of the most destructive things that we've seen happen is women trying to be like men in the workplace. Not that I, I am 100% behind the whole idea of if a woman is doing the same job as a man, she should be paid the same thing. Absolutely. But we now live in a world that is so upside down that women are becoming like men, and men are becoming like women, and men are giving up their natural relationships with women for other men, and women are doing the same for, you know, and it's, 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 it's a mess. It's upside down. And it's the end result of a curse that is still rolling in this world. The earth was cursed, man was driven to work, and death entered the world. Romans 5.12, again, Paul writes, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. You know what? I didn't sin the sin of Adam. I sinned the sins of Rick. I never ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I had some different trees that I was eating from. I am cursed to die because of my sin, not because of Adam's. Adam's sin opened the doorway and death entered the world. But I don't die because of Adam's sin. I die because of Rick's. You don't die because of Rick's sin. I feel really bad if that were the case. But Mark dies because of Mark's sin. And Michael dies because of Michael's sin. And you know how this is going. Now, this last section is both tragic and beautiful because God is cleaning up the whole thing. Can you hang with me five more minutes? Can you? All right. Verse 20. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. 
And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way. By the way, that word guard is keep. To keep the way to the tree of life. Now this is absolutely stunning, and I want you to get this picture. It's the last thing, but it's probably to me the biggest thing we've talked about tonight. He stationed cherubim at the east of the garden to keep the tree of life, to protect it, to keep it safe. Part of that, by the way, was a move of grace because once sin enters our lives, we begin to decay. And if we could go and still eat of the tree of life right now, we would live forever, but we would be living forever in decaying bodies. Can you imagine being 94 years old, arthritic, withered hands, heart not working very well, old, bent over, and knowing that you're going to live another 500 years, another 1,000 years. Knowing your body was going to continue to decay because that's what sin does to us. But you're going to just keep on living. Keep eating that fruit of the tree of life and you're going to live on and on and on and on and on, but you're going to continue to decay. And God said, you know what? I love man too much for that. I'm not going to let him eat from the tree of life while he is in the position of decay. So he puts the cherubim, now picture this, he puts these cherubim up there to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, God then made garments, animal skin garments, to cover Adam and Eve. See, they wanted to use fig leaves to protect, to cover themselves, and God said, no, there's another way. But it's going to require sacrifice. And we see the first animal sacrifice in Scripture. Because now they're covered with animal skins. First sacrifice. Because only with the shedding of blood is there forgiveness. Stay with me on this. Adam and Eve are now leaving the garden. As they leave the garden, if they were to look back, and I would imagine they looked back, they would see there the cherubim stationed at the east of Eden and blood on the ground. The blood of the animals whose clothing, whose skin, they now wore. Got that picture in your mind? Consider two more pictures. God commanded Israel to make a box out of acacia wood covered with gold. The Ark of the Covenant. Some of you remember this. That on top of the Ark of the Covenant, he made what is called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat are two cherubim. The high priest, one day out of every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, goes into the holiest place and sprinkles blood right between the cherubim. The blood of sacrifice that would be substitutionary blood to cover the sins of Israel for that year. Another picture. Sprinkled blood of sacrifice. You can read about it in Leviticus 16.14 when they were commanded to do it. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, one may say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Now some might say, Why? Why kill innocent animals? That's brutal. Why kill a little lamb that's done nothing wrong? Why did God command such a sick thing? 
to tear up. They say that on the day on Passover in Jerusalem in the temple that there were so many lambs killed, there was so much blood that it literally ran ankle deep in the temple. Why the brutality of it all? Because that's what sin does. Because sin is brutal. Because sin is ugly. And we have no idea how sin hurts God and messes up our lives. And so God said, let me paint a graphic picture for you, Adam and Eve. Slice. I want you to wear this. This will cover your shame. This will cover your nakedness. Let me explain it to you clearly, Israel. Slice. This atones for your sin for this year. Fast forward again. Not to the cross, but to the mercy seat of Jesus on the throne in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, John says, I looked and lo, in the middle of the throne and of the four cherubim. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. In Eden, cherubim, blood. On top of the mercy seat, cherubim, blood. And when John looks at Jesus in the book of Revelation, he is in the midst of the cherubim looking as a slain lamb. Surrounded by cherubim. The significance of this scene is absolutely astounding because it takes us right back to the first garden scene, only this time, instead of a curse, we have grace. The grace of God that was spoken as early as the first curse. The grace of God that comes through Jesus, who is the lifter of the curse. Galatians 3.27, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves... Not with animal skins, certainly not with fig leaves. You've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You are all one. Wait, wait, what was that? There's neither male nor female. There's no more that division. That No, you're all one in Christ. In Acts chapter 27, there's a really interesting thing that happens. Paul is on a boat, on a ship, and a storm comes up. Now, Paul, before he even got on the boat, told the guys sailing the boat, you know what, the weather doesn't look good, and I have a bad feeling about this. And Paul knew that because he'd already been in one shipwreck before. But they put him on the boat because this time Paul is not on a boat traveling on a missionary journey. Now he's on the boat as a prisoner going to Rome. And so he's in chains on the boat and a squall comes up and a storm comes up and it is huge, it's massive and the boat is being tossed every way to and fro and Paul says to them, hey listen, tell, tell your men, tells the centurion not to jump overboard, not to abandon ship don't jump ship, hang in there because if you do, the Lord has told me everyone will be saved. And so they do, although some men try and throw a little boat overboard and climb into it, but Paul warns them so they don't go, they cut the boat loose, and the ship runs aground. And they are stranded on the island of Malta. Now on the island of Malta, they were all saved, not one man perished, just like Paul said they would, just like the angel told Paul, you're not going to perish. On Malta, interesting thing happens. Paul goes about, as a prisoner, gathering sticks up for a big bonfire. 
Now, the natives are all there helping out, and the centurions, the Romans, and the other slaves. And Paul has his bundle of sticks, and he goes to cast his sticks into the fire. And when he does, the heat of the fire, out of the flames, out of the heat, out of that hellish hotness, a snake jumps out and attaches himself to Paul's hand. A viper. The natives know on Malta this is an extremely poisonous snake. Paul shakes the snake off into the fire. He has just received a death-giving snake bite. Kind of like Eve in the garden. She was bitten by the snake, by the serpent, and the result was death. But Paul now has this death-giving snake bite, and the natives gather around just waiting to watch this man fall over dead. And he doesn't. He doesn't die. In fact, he goes about stoking the fire, eating the food, and they begin to call Paul a god. Something that they didn't understand. The difference between Paul and Eve. The difference between Paul and Adam. Adam was bitten by the snake. Eve was bitten by the snake. And they died. When Paul was bitten by the snake, he didn't die because now the curse has been lifted. And Paul was covered by the grace of Jesus. Paul is now in Christ. He's not under the same rules anymore. The amazing thing to me as we finish all of this is that all of these curses that have been leveled against man and woman that have so laid waste to our lives in Christ the curse is removed. In Christ though the snake may try to bite you Though you will have times in your life where hellish things happen to you. Though temptation will arise and the enemy will buffet you at every turn. Though the storms will come in your life. Understand that it's just a snake bite. And because now, that you're, in, now you're in Christ, it cannot kill you. Father, it is so good to be in grace. It is so good, Lord, to be clothed with Christ, not clothed with animal skins, which was nothing but a representation of grace. Certainly not clothed with fig leaves, which just represents all of our hard work and labor to try and make our lives better. But instead, Father, to be clothed in Jesus and in your grace. Father, I thank you so much for the attentiveness of my friends here tonight and allowing me to go on and on. But I pray, Lord, I hope that we have all heard the message of grace. That even though Genesis chapter 3 is a, is a tragedy, that we see the first sin, that out of it comes an amazing picture. Jesus, bloody, looking as a lamb slain between the cherubim, our Lord of grace. Father, if there are any of us here tonight who are clinging to or hanging on to sin, not able to forgive ourselves, feeling like we've just made too much of a mess of things, would you remind us that you remove the fig leaves and that you replace it with the clothing of Christ? And may we wear that clothing not in pride, but in absolute humility and thankfulness that you loved us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.